Radio halos and radiometric dating. The first one ruins the second. Radio halos ruin radiometric dating. This week on Creation Magazine Live. The audio podcast that you're about to hear features scientific evidence for biblical creation. For many more evidences for the accuracy of the Bible, visit our website, creation.com. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. My name is Richard Fangrad. And I'm Thomas Bailey. Now this week on Creation Magazine Live, uh, the, the title of the show is Radio Halos Ruin Radiometric Dating. Our topic is about nuclear dating, radiometric dating, and some powerful evidence that gives it artificially inflated dates. And some of you might be thinking, what? How yeah. can it be wrong? It's physics, it's nuclear decay, which can be measured. So how can it give wrong dates? Yeah, and to answer that, we're going to need to start with a quick recap of how radiometric dating works. Uh, of course, if you're a regular viewer, you're likely at least a little bit familiar with how it works since we've discussed it on previous episodes over the years. But let's explain it again. And then we'll look into these radio halo thingies. Ooh, that sounds sciencey. <laughs> well, I'm not a physicist. You're not a physicist. I'm guessing um, most of our viewers aren't physicists. I didn't want to scare people away. Uh, so we're, we're going to talk about these things today that, um, that Bible-believing physicists and geologists have written uh, in Creation Magazine, for example. We'll look at some articles there and more technical publications like the Journal of Creation. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Okay, radiometric dating. The first thing we could say about dating methods in general is that the great majority of them, and there are about over 200, give ages that are too short for evolution. Only about 10% of dating methods give the long ages that evolution needs. Right, yeah. And if we approach that fact scientifically or logically, it would make the most sense to go with the majority of dating methods as perhaps indicating something about the origin of the the Earth and the universe, and then uh, kind of question why the minority of dating methods seem to be giving these anomalously high dates. Well, that's not what happens. No. <laughs> the majority of dating methods are swept under the rug, while the ones that do give the millions or billions of years are trumpeted in the media. And the impression the public gets is that all dating methods proclaim an ancient Earth, yeah. much older than the biblical timescale. Yeah, if, you, if you're interested in exploring some of those methods, there's a great article on the website creation.com slash age titled 101 Evidences for a Young Age of the Earth and Universe. That's a great place to start. One of the keys to understanding dating methods is realizing that every single one of them involves making assumptions right. about things that cannot be known for sure. And those assumptions introduce error, sometimes huge errors, into the calculated date. That's right. Yeah, Dr. Tasman Walker, one of our scientists, wrote a wonderful article that I think we're just going to read here. Uh, it's titled, How Dating Methods Work, and it will help you understand the role of these assumptions in dating methods. He writes, Addressing the students, I used a measuring cylinder to illustrate how scientific dating methods work. My picture showed a water tap dripping into the cylinder. It was clearly marked so my audience could see that it held exactly 300 milliliters of water. The diagram also showed that the water was dripping at a rate of 50 milliliters per hour. I asked, how long has the water been dripping into the cylinder? Immediately, someone called out, six hours. Good. How did you work that out? By dividing the amount of water in the cylinder, 300 milliliters, by the rate, 50 milliliters per hour. Excellent, I said. See how easy it is to calculate the age of something scientifically? 
Every dating method that scientists use works exactly the same way. It involves measuring something that is changing with time. He continues, People began to relax once they understood that the science of dating is not so difficult. Then I surprised them. The problem is that six hours is the wrong answer. They looked puzzled and disbelieving. I set this experiment up, and I can tell you that the water has only been dripping for one hour. Can you tell me what happened? After they had composed themselves, someone called out, the tap was dripping faster in the past? Perhaps, I said. The cylinder was nearly full when you started? Maybe. But can you see what you are doing, I asked. In order to calculate an age, you made assumptions about the past. You assumed the rate had always been 50 milliliters per hour and that the cylinder was empty when it started. Based on those assumptions, you calculated the time of six hours. They nodded. You were perfectly happy with that answer. Not one of you challenged it. They agreed. Then when I told you the correct answer, do you realize what you did? You quickly changed your assumptions about the past in order to agree with the age I told you. That's a great story, isn't it? And, and you can see there, hopefully, the important role that assumptions played. The article uh, concludes, Every scientist must make assumptions about the past before he can calculate an age. If the result seems okay, then he will happily accept it. But if it does not agree with other information, then he will change his assumptions so that his answer does agree. It does not matter if the calculated age is too old or too young. There are many assumptions a scientist can make to get a consistent answer. Suddenly, the lights went on. My audience saw, in a nutshell, the way dating methods work. And, and this last line is profound here. Scientific dating is not a way of measuring, but a way of thinking. <laughs> wow. We're working toward understanding why, of all the dating methods out there, Radiometric dating gives dates that are way older, but we need to cover some basics first. I mean, we we want to ease into this physics stuff slowly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Let's talk about how radiometric dating works. Only igneous rocks can be dated this way. That's a rock that was formed as a result of cooling lava or magma. When the molten material cools and becomes solid rock, that's when the radiometric clock starts. The rock will encapsulate something that is radioactive, and over time, the radioactive element decays into something stable. To get a date for the rock, the amount of the radioactive parent product and the amount of the stable daughter product are both measured, and then the age is calculated. That's right. Now, note that scientists don't observe and measure the age of a rock. They observe and measure isotopes in the rock, and the isotope concentrations can be measured very accurately. That's not the issue, but isotope concentrations aren't dates. I mean, we, we, have, we have microscopes, we have telescopes, we don't have pastoscopes, right? That's not how it works. <laughs> so with that explanation, it might be a little easier for you to see where the assumptions are, right? Hopefully, yeah. As we said, all dating methods involve making assumptions. You can't get around them. Uh, we can illustrate the assumptions involved in radiometric dating using an hourglass, where the radioactive parent isotope is the sand in the top, and over time, it becomes the stable daughter isotope represented by the sand in the bottom. Right. There are three main assumptions here. Number one, the starting conditions are known. For example, that there was no daughter isotope present at the start, or that we know how much was there. Number two, nuclear decay rates have always been constant. And number three, systems were closed or isolated so that no parent or daughter isotopes were lost or added. 
Right. Now, all three of those assumptions cause huge errors in the dates. And we'll get to some examples of where the dates were way off in a few minutes. But we're going to focus on the second one, that nuclear decay rates have been constant all the time. The rate has to be the same, otherwise the calculated date is, is going to be inaccurate. It's like trying to measure elapsed time with a clock that sometimes runs really fast and other times runs really slow. That's a useless <laughs> clock. Right? right. Or in the story we just read from Dr. Taz Walker, it's the assumption that the tap was always dripping at the same rate. Right. Here's where the discoveries about radio halos offer strong evidence that nuclear decay rates have in fact changed dramatically in the recent past. So what are radio halos? The radio halos uh, that we'll be discussing are found in granite. And by the way, uh, if you want more details on any of this, there's plenty of articles on creation.com slash radiometric dating. Lots of articles at that link there. Most people are familiar with granite because it's a popular rock used for kitchen countertops and bench tops in, in home kitchens, that kind of thing. Uh, granite often has glassy pink and cream crystals as well as flakes of a black shiny mineral called biotite. Now the biotite flakes often contain tiny crystals of other minerals, particularly zircon. The zircon crystals are typically surrounded by halos of dark colored rings that look like little archery targets. These are the radio halos that we've been mentioning. Okay, yeah, so how do radio halos form? And as, as you just said, in a cross-section on a microscope slide, they appear as a series of concentric rings, usually surrounded by a central core. The central core is, at, at least initially, radioactive. During radioactive decay, high-energy alpha particles are emitted from the core. They travel a certain distance through the mineral, ca causing damage. They damage it and causing it to discolor. Most of the damage happens where the particle stops. And how far the particle travels depends on its energy. Right. Since all the alpha particles from a particular type of decay reaction have the same energy, and the particles are fired in all directions, a spherical shell or disc of discoloration will form, appearing circular in cross-section. Right, yeah, imagine shooting a bullet, for example, into a lump of cork. Uh, eventually the bullet stops, but it'll leave behind a trail of damage. Uh, the depth that it penetrates into the cork depends on the speed of the bullet. Now, different radioactive substances shoot alpha particles, or bullets if you like, at different, those specific speeds, so we can identify the substance that's decaying from the diameter of the, of the sphere of damage. The higher the energy of decay, the faster the speed of the bullet. That's right. Radioactive uranium generates a stunning multi-ringed halo because it decays in a number of steps. There are 15 isotopes, or varieties of elements, in this decay chain. Here you can see radioactive decay series beginning with uranium-238 and ending with lead-206. Eight of those emit alpha particles when they decay, forming eight rings. Now, if instead of radioactive uranium, the core was composed of an isotope along the chain somewhere, there would be fewer rings produced. So it's quite simple to work out which isotope was originally in the core by counting the rings. Uh, for example, polonium-218 forms three rings, polonium-214 forms two, and polonium-210 forms only one. All right. At today's measured rates of radioactive decay, it's been estimated that uranium would have to decay for 100 million years to produce the uranium halos. Ooh. That is, at today's decay rates. At today's rates, yeah. Now, here's where things get interesting. 
Alongside the uranium halos within granites, there is powerful evidence that uranium once decayed much faster during a global geological catastrophe. Let's see that evidence. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, the, the last three rings of a uranium halo are produced by an element called polonium, as we just said. Madame Curie, with her husband Pierre, discovered it in 1898 and named it after her homeland, Poland. A uh, little rabbit trail there. Uh, one of the more interesting features of radioactive polonium is that it decays very quickly. It turns into something else very, very fast. Because of that, it's rarely found in nature by itself. It's continually generated when uranium decays. It's part of that decay sequence. So radioactive polonium is always associated with uranium. So it was a great surprise when researchers discovered radio halos that were produced by polonium alone. Yes. Here are some pictures of polonium radio halos without uranium. The big question is, how did polonium come to exist on its own in the radio centers of these halos? That question puzzled scientists for many years. Yep. But how do we know that they really are polonium halos? Uh, and, and the answer is, polonium halos are easily identified by the number of rings and the size of those rings. That's been confirmed by experiments. Okay, so there really are polonium radio halos. There really are. The next big question is, what does the existence of these polonium halos mean? Because polonium has such a short existence, the polonium halos must have formed very rapidly in only hours or days. By the way, some granites have uranium and polonium radio halos in every biotite flake. What's the answer? There had to be a source of abundant polonium close by to create the radio centers. Otherwise, the polonium halos would not have formed. Right. Many of the polonium halos have uranium halos right next to them, often less than a millimeter away. There's a hint. Here's a picture with the polonium-214 radio halo with the faint outer ring. Uh, it's the one that's centered on the crack that you can see in the crystal there, and a dark uranium radio halo nearby. That's the larger dark area below and to the left that you see there. Okay. So here's the likely scenario. As the uranium in the centers of the uranium halos decayed and produced the halo rings, it also generated polonium. These formed the polonium halos. This diagram shows a cross-section through a biotite flake showing a uranium radio halo on the left and a nearby polonium-210 radio halo on the right, which produces a single ring. Hot water flowing between the flake's sheets carry polonium a short distance and then concentrate it into a new radio center. The explanation for this is that the polonium came from uranium that was decaying in the mineral very close to where the polonium halos are found. Mm -hmm. The polonium was carried through the mineral by water. So there's a quick recap of what is essentially the introduction to the main point that we're discussing today. Now let's put it all together and draw some conclusions. Okay, ho hopefully we can. First, to make the polonium halos requires an abundant supply of polonium. It takes the amount equivalent to about 100 million years of radioactive decay of uranium at today's rates. So by looking at the rings, the halos, and the amounts of parent and daughter isotopes, there's been the equivalent of about 100 million years of radioactive decay at the, at the rates we measure today. But... But... All of this polonium had to be available quickly before it could decay away. Right. That is, it all had to concentrate within hours or a few days at the most. 
Therefore, the polonium halos mean that 100 million years worth of radioactive decay of uranium at the decay rates measured today occurred in just a few days. In other words, the radioactive decay of uranium was formerly up to a billion times faster than it is today. Wow, accelerated nuclear decay. That would explain why, of all the methods to age date various parts of creation, the oceans, the atmosphere, rocks, trees, whatever, this particular method, which is based on nuclear decay, radioactive decay, gives dates that are way higher than most of the other methods. Right. A second implication is this. If uranium decayed at such a super-fast rate, the other radioactive elements decayed much faster, too. Right. Remember, the radioactive methods used to date rocks at billions of years old assume that radioactive decay rates have always been the same as what we measure today. But here's scientific evidence that the decay rates have not always been the same. The polonium halos are solid evidence that rocks dated at billions of years old by the radioactive methods are, in fact, only a few thousand years old. That's right. And third, the radio halos can only form after the granites have solidified and cooled. If it's still molten, the halos won't form. So the radioactive decay of uranium, which generated the polonium, had to start soon after the granite started to solidify and continue until the polonium halos had formed. So the problem is this. It's usually claimed that granites take millions of years to solidify and cool. Right. But in that case, there wouldn't be any polonium halos. In such a long time, all the uranium and polonium would have decayed away. Therefore, polonium halos mean that the granites solidified and cooled in just six to ten days. Yeah. So uranium and polonium radio halos provide another line of evidence that catastrophic geological processes have happened on a young Earth. During the year-long flood about, about 4,500 years ago, sediments were eroded and deposited catastrophically on a global scale. The catastrophe buried vast graveyards of, of plants and animals, producing the, the fossil-bearing rock layers all over the Earth. Rapid Earth movements pushed up mountains and formed granite bodies quickly. And inside these granites, super-fast radioactive decay generated uranium and polonium radio halos. Mm -hmm. These are so microscopic they could easily be overlooked, but they're in granites all over the world. Yeah. They're exciting confirmation that the Earth and its rocks are not millions and billions of years old, as usually claimed, but only about 6,000 years, as God's Word records in the historical narrative of Genesis. That's right. Hopefully, most of you got the main points so far. <laughs> Hopefully. That there's powerful evidence in granite all over the world at the microscopic level for accelerated radiometric decay. Yes. Rocks dated using this dating method are going to give inflated dates. Yeah, and those inflated dates are the result of one of the three main assumptions that go into radiometric dating being wrong. That the, that the decay rates have always been the same. There are documented cases where scientists see the other two assumptions causing problems also. Right. For example, fossil wood from a quarry near the town of Banbury, England, about 80 miles northwest of London, was dated using the carbon-14 method. The ages calculated ranged from 20.7 to 28.8 thousand years old. But the limestone in which the wood was found was of Jurassic age. 183 million years old. Clearly, the dating methods are in conflict. <laughs> Do you think? Yeah. <laughs> oh. 
Diamonds, another example. Diamonds analyzed from mines in South Africa and Botswana found measurable carbon-14, over 10 times the detection limit of the laboratory equipment. The average age calculated for the samples was 55,700 years old. Yet the rocks that contained the diamonds ranged from 1 to 3 billion years old. Oops, <laughs> another conflict. You think? <laughs> yeah. Rock samples from a lava dome within the Mount St. Helens crater in Washington, USA, were dated using the potassium-argon method. Whole rock samples gave an age of 350,000 years. Some minerals in the rock sample were extracted and analyzed separately. Their age was more than double at 900,000 years. Two mineral samples of a different mineral gave an age of 1.7 and 2.8 million years. So which one's right? <laughs> None, actually. The lava dome formed after Mount St. Helens exploded in 1980, and the samples were just 10 years old. Here are some more conflicting results between dating methods. Yeah, I'd say. Uh, here's another example. Researchers measured isochron ages of a rock called amphibolite sampled from southeast India. With the rubidium-strontium method, they obtained an age of 481 million years. But with the samarium-neodymium, the age was almost double at 824 million years. Wow. So did the disagreement cause the researchers to, to doubt the dating methods? Nope. Apparently not. They removed the disagreement by the way they interpreted the results. They said the older age was the age when the rocks underwent metamorphism, while okay. the younger age was when the rocks were later heated. Really? How did they know? I mean, no matter what the numbers are, a plausible story can always be invented after the results come in. Creation scientists have uncovered dozens of anomalies and conflicts like this. Surprisingly, these wrong results uh, don't unsettle mainstream geologists who really believe the world is billions of years old. And the data doesn't cause them to question their belief. All you need to make wrong dates fit with evolution is a little creative thinking. So, Apparently. <laughs> yeah. Conflicting radioactive dating results are reported all the time. And on their own, there is no way of knowing what they mean. Yeah. So geologists research how other geologists have interpreted the other rocks in the area in order to find out what sort of dates they would expect. Um, yeah, and then they invent a story to explain the numbers as part of the geologic history of that area. It's amazing. Creationist geologists consider that the Bible records the true history of the earth and that the rocks are less than 6,000 years old. Because the Bible is accurate and historically verifiable, it's scientifically valid to interpret radioactive dating results within a biblical scenario. And that leads to much more fruitful research results. It does. The data fits the biblical model far more easily than the millions of years model. That's right, yeah. You know what, Creation Magazine, this Creation Magazine Live, we get a lot of our content from Creation Magazine. It frequently has articles about new scientific discoveries that support the Bible's account of creation. If, you, if you've never heard of the magazine, you can view a free digital copy at creation.com slash freemag. If you like it, subscribe. It's a great magazine. Right, and, and we'd love to hear from you. You know, if this show has helped you to understand a little more about science or polonium radio halos or whatever <laughs> it is, or the true history in the Bible, send us a note through the feedback section at creation.com. We'll see you next week. And remember, Christianity is an evidence-based faith. And science supports scripture. 
today's episode was originally formatted for broadcast TV and is available online at the links in the podcast show notes. Both are produced by Creation Ministries International, publishers of Creation Magazine. For more information for the accuracy of the Bible, visit creation.com. You can also donate to the ministry at creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening.